And hopefully, no heresies. This is episode two, Reformers Radio, where we can't make it to worship on time, and my wife's presuppositions are better than mine. I'm your host, DA the Reformer. First of all, I want to apologize for something I said last week in the podcast. I said that Jesus said something in John chapter 3 that he didn't actually say until John chapter 6. Now, I don't know. Jesus might have said what he's, what I said he said to Nicodemus, but it isn't recorded for us. Not until John 6. And who knows? Nicodemus might have been around in John chapter 6 when Jesus actually said what I said he said. But I don't know that. So, my bad. Make sure you read your Bibles and double check everything I say. We need that kind of accountability um, because I'm not a pastor and I'm not an elder. Not now. Anyway, um, I was a minister in my old church, but we left that church. So I don't know if my minister status comes with me. I'm sure I still have all the tools, but yeah, make sure you're double checking everything. I need to double check everything I say because um, Lord knows I don't want to be a heretic. Nobody wants to be a heretic on purpose. At least nobody in their right mind. Anyway, um, Sunday morning, we didn't make it to worship on time. Actually, we didn't make it to worship at all. Um, I worked all night. I got off of work probably about 8 in the morning. And um, my wife knew when I was coming home. This has been something that we've been dealing with for a few weeks now. We've been visiting this new church. And service actually starts a little bit earlier than service at our other church. So... Getting out of the house has been difficult, but I don't get it because the very first week we went, we were legitimately about 30 minutes early. We haven't been early since. We might have been on time once since then. It's been almost two months now. But, yeah, we we just can't seem to get out of the house. And mind you, I'm wide awake because I'm just getting off of work. So all I got to do is change my clothes and we're leaving. And every week I find myself in a car asking the same question. What do we have to do to get out the house on time? I don't get it. I don't like being late, especially for worship. And going to a church where they're not going to be in service for three and a half, four hours. Um, you need to be there on time. And I realize this. So it is something we're working on. But anyway, Sunday on the way to on the way to worship, we were. In traffic the entire way there, it seemed like there was a road race in town. I guess it was like a 5K walk race or something like that. And they had all the streets leading down to the church blocked. So we were taking the detour route and we drove by this other church. And on the outside, outside of the door, they had um, some signs. I could tell that this was a very liberal institution. Um, but one sign that caught my eye was a a sign that said, God is still speaking. And they had these words against a rainbow background. So I looked at my wife and I asked her, I was like, Hmm, I wonder what God is saying to them. I mean, of course you see a rainbow in a church nowadays. 
you can kind of guess that they might be on the liberal side of things. But my wife looked at me and goes, well, we all know what the rainbow means. I'm like, yeah, but it doesn't mean that to them. She's like, yeah, so what? And you know, does it stand for God's promise? And I'm like, yeah, you're right. I'm like, that's an awesome presupposition. I got to work on my precept. So that's why we have this podcast. <clears throat> Some of the things that um, I'm dealing with, I'm working through, will be worked out on this podcast. You all are going to help me. I appreciate that. So one thing that I'd seen uh, a couple weeks ago was an article on Twitter. Um, I think it was from Christianity Today or the Christian Post, one of those websites. Uh, when I find it, I'll put it posted in the show notes with this episode. But um, in the article, it's, it has said that the Toronto Raptors general manager was asked how to beat the Golden State Warriors. Now, at the time, the Golden State Warriors were undefeated. And he said, according to this report, the GM has said that the only way to beat the Warriors was to pray to God. Um, I don't know if he was joking or if he was serious or in what manner it was said. This is just what the articles had mentioned. So after they quote the GM, they go on to talk about how there are multiple Warriors players who are believers and not the least of being which their their leading point guard, Steph Curry. And the rest of the article just basically talked about him and his faith. Now, I don't really have a problem with the GM saying that the only way to beat the Warriors is with by praying to God. But one thing that I crossed my mind and now to catch myself, um, most people will be quick to say that God doesn't care about sports. God doesn't decide who wins or who loses and all of that. I remember the days when I thought that. But now being reformed and realizing that God is sovereign over every single aspect of life and that everything has been foreordained before the foundation of the world. Um, essentially, God has decided who would win and who would lose. I mean, it, it'd be silly to say that God has decided every other aspect of life. But when it comes to sports, God doesn't mess with it. God hasn't decided who would, God hasn't decided a winner. He hasn't decided a loser. That's how we play the game. From where I sit today, I'd beg to differ for the simple fact that we know God is sovereign over every single thing that takes place. Good, bad or indifferent. There's been foreordained. So to say that God doesn't care about sports, meh, you might be right. But to say that he hasn't picked a winner or a loser, that's different. That's when we're getting into some uh, theologically weak territory. So, and and it's difficult for me because I remember days, right, in high school playing football, um, my senior year in particular, there was this one game. I'm running around the lock, locker room yelling. I was like, if God be for us, who can be against us? And my cousin was a running back. He was like, nobody. Like, if God is for us, who can be against us? And he was like, Nobody. Looking back, I'm thinking about it, I'm like, OK, was God only in our locker room? Were there no other Christians anywhere on the field? And mind you, I wasn't even a good Christian then. So 
I mean, it's just this idea we have in America that just that if God is for us, nobody can be against us. But we definitely take that verse out of its context when we use it in athletic and competition type events. Of course, you know, we'd love to think that we have this invincible almighty deity in our corner when we step on the field of competition. But he really isn't concerned so much with our victory on the field. What he is concerned about is the state of our souls. And he's already done all the work there. He's in full control of that. And the two interrelate when you talk about God's sovereignty and salvation and God's sovereignty in sports. Of course, God has already decided those who would be elect and those who would win the Super Bowl this year. Those who would win the NBA championship this year. He's already decided it, essentially. So then where does that leave men? Where does that leave the competitors? What does that do to the competition aspect of it? Nothing. Man still has the responsibility to go out and to play and to compete at the highest level possible. God gave us the ability to go out, run, jump, do incredibly amazing athletic things that not everybody can do. So as an athlete, do I, well, would I today go out with the mindset to, to win because God is on my side? No. My main focus as an athlete from this understanding would be to glorify God in my athletics, in my competition. I want God to be glorified. How do we glorify God in competition? Well, well, first of all, you're going to play fair. <laughs> you're going to be a good sportsman and you're going to play to the best of your ability. You're going to compete to the highest level you're capable of. And at the end of the day, when you walk away and people ask how you did it or why you did it, you did it to bring God glory because that's man's chief end, right? Right. I know you're not telling me anything I don't know, <laughs> but that's really the only reason we do anything in this world is to bring God glory. So it, and when I think about it, it's weird, too, because it would seem as though many are definitely against prosperity gospel. A lot of people are against prosperity gospel, unless they're in it. But more often than not, most people can see prosperity gospel when they see it. But when it comes to athletic competition, sometimes we might miss it. And this is something I, I just caught after reading this article and thinking about it. To say that God will help you be victorious in the field of competition to say that he's on your side and that he gave you a victory. I mean, he did give you the victory, but in the prosperity gospel sense, you know what I'm talking about? Like, because you have faith in God, because you prayed to God about winning, you won as if your prayers 
were the catalyst in God's decision and it wasn't his goodwill. It wasn't because this is what he wanted. But it's something that you wanted, it's something you asked for and you worked for, and God rewarded you because you acknowledged him. You know, you hear athletes say, you know, you know, keep God first or, you know, just have faith and believe and you can do anything because nothing's impossible for God. Nothing's impossible with God. That's prosperity gospel, yo. Just in a different in a different context. It's not about uh, health and wealth in that sense. But when you look at a high school athlete and you say, hey, just have faith in God and everything will work out for you. They're going to essentially they're going to look to God and say, hey, um, I'm putting you first. Thank you for football and let me win. And that's prosperity gospel. We should be teaching younger athletes and athletes in general. That to be able to play a sport at any level, first of all, is a privilege and it's a gift to play it at a really high level is a really special gift. <laughs> so the higher level you play, the more glory you better bring to the God, to God with your athletic ability. And it's not, how do I want to say it? It's not about so much looking good while you're doing it. Um, not going out there for your own glory. It's about bringing God glory. And like I said, the higher the level, um, the more you better recognize how much of a gift it is. Because there are a lot of people, not I'm not speaking from experience, there are a lot of people gunning for the professional professional ranks. Just the sheer odds. Um, when I was training for the NFL at one point, the sheer amount of people I would see around the country at different tryouts and stuff. Um, and I would often see sometimes the same people, you know, going from place to place. It was, it was eye opening. And in that moment, you realize just how special it is to get a chance to get to that professional level. And in the context of the, the Christian athlete, they're looking to, get to the pros and some of them would say to, to gain the platform in order to spread God's message. Eh, it's admirable, I guess. But let, let's think about this though. You want to gain a platform playing a game in order to magnify the creator of the universe. Let's think about that. You're playing a game. You want to get big and famous so that you can glorify the God who so you can magnify the God who created the universe. I'm sorry to bust your bubble, but God does not need the platform of the NBA, the NFL or Major League Baseball to declare his greatness. The heavens declare his greatness. The seas and the mountains, this planet declares his greatness. The stars declare his glory. So anybody looking to get anybody saying, oh, uh, 
I want to get to this level so, you know, I can have a platform in order to preach the gospel. That's great. Let's make sure that you really preach the gospel when and if you get there. But realize that God does not need any of us to gain a platform for him in that regard. He doesn't need us to gain that type of platform for that purpose. Yes, it'd be awesome to see an individual performing at a high level professionally playing the sport and they have a right theology of God's sovereignty in it all. You know, not not attributing only the wins to God, but the wins and the losses, the ups and the downs, realizing that God has blessed them through it all, especially if they've been injury free. That's a blessing. But God doesn't need Christian athletes in order to spread the gospel. That's what he's called his preachers for. So. If you're if you've been blessed with the privilege to play a sport, awesome. Use use it. Take it as far as you can go. But realize that in doing so, the ultimate purpose is to glorify God. And that doesn't mean that you're looking to gain attention and kind of humbly divert um you know like a a fake form of modesty almost. Where you're kind of always in the spotlight, but you kind of shy away from it when it comes to you. You know, fake humility isn't humility at all. But just realize that God is sovereign over it all. And win, lose, or tie, you know, it's been predetermined, but you still go out and perform at a high level because God has blessed us with the ability to. Um, I don't know if any of that made sense. I'm going to keep it honest with you. I feel like I was rambling, but. Um, we're going to get on into our, um, our, theolo- our theology matters section of the show this week. Um, last week when I had uh, mentioned it, I realized I said that theology matters, but I didn't say why. Remember, I just said something silly, but I really didn't give an explanation. So that's what this will be this week. Um, so when, in the future, when we deal with our, our theology matters, um, we'll be approaching it from this perspective, knowing that our theology and our understanding of God and his word, his revealed well, his revealed revelation, um, what we think about God, that plays a major role in how we live our life. Our theology affects everything that we say and do. People say that there is no God. All right, that's a theology. You know, and their lives will reflect that. They will live like there is no God. A lot of people will say God is love and that would be the the only attribute that they focus on. So then they end up living lives that that say, well, you know, God loves me through it all. He loves everybody. And their lives reflect it. They strip God of his complete gloriousness to this this one aspect, which is good, which is great, because if it wasn't for God's love, none of us would have been saved. But 
at the end of the day, that isn't the only thing to focus on. Especially when you want to build a, a full theology of who God is. Our theology affects our worldview. How we see the world. How we carry ourselves in this world. Our presuppositions is affected. They are affected by our theology. We cannot go on with weak theology or theological indifference and not think that it won't be challenged. Because where there's theological indifference, there's going to be compromise. You cannot take a firm stance on something you're indifferent on when it when it counts if you haven't taken the time to solidify what the Bible says about it, what God says about particular issues and circumstances. If you don't know, how can you stand on it? What what we believe affects our actions. What we what we learn about God ultimately decides how we're going to live. I, I use this analogy pretty often. I, I tell people, I ask them, if you knew it was going to rain, um, what would you do? And they say, you know, I'd prepare. I'd probably wear a jacket or bring an umbrella if I was leaving the house. I'm like, okay. You'd bring an umbrella because you believed it was going to rain. They say, yeah. I was like, okay. So what if you were to believe that God is a righteous judge and he has to punish sin? How then would you live? Things kind of change a little bit. And it gets a little bit more real. Because we begin to realize that. All right, God is a righteous judge and he has to punish sin. So I am guilty of breaking his law. So he's going to punish me. If I failed to repent and put my faith in Jesus Christ, why? Because Christ has already died for the penalty of sin. Christ has already died so that we don't have to pay the price. I believe the um, the correct theological term is that Christ is our propitiation. You know, he was the one that he was. He paid the sacrifice. He was the sacrifice. He stood in our place. And because of that. We now have salvation granted to us. But that is a that's why theology matters. It matters because it affects every aspect of our life. So. What should be the goal of theology? The goal of theology is to learn and love God. To learn about God so that we can worship him more deeply. You know, I, I can't walk up to I couldn't have walked up to my wife when I first met her before she was my wife. Um, When she was just a girl to me, I couldn't have walked up to her, you know, the first time meeting her saying, hey, I love you. Uh, I want to spend the rest of my life with you. She would have looked at me like I was crazy because that type of adoration wasn't coming out of anything legitimate. I mean, if anything, at that point in time, it would have just been physical attraction, maybe. I don't know. 
I didn't know her. I didn't know anything about her. So any feeling that I would have had for her would have been illegitimate or false. We have to take the time to get to know who God is. Otherwise, we won't be able to worship him the way that he requires us necessarily to worship him. I um I remember hearing John MacArthur say on one occasion that in order to worship God highly, we have to go deep. We have to have a deep understanding and a deep knowledge of who God is if we're going to have a high worship of him. If we're going to have a high view of him, our knowledge of him has to be deep. And that's theology. And theology, like I said, uh, it kind of sets up and um, gets our presuppositions in order. If you don't know what a presupposition is, it's kind of like an understanding that you have of something before you approach a, a particular topic. So just like earlier when I spoke about um, my wife and seeing a little sign outside the church, you know, I approached it from this angle that said, well, liberals are taking overs. One group of people have completely used all the colors for their purposes. And this is what we're doing. This is what they're doing with it. And my wife would say, yeah, no, um, the rainbow is God's. The rainbow means what God says it means. That's a presupposition. In that moment, I had forgotten <laughs> it would seem that, I mean, I, I've known that, but it, I wasn't conscious of it right there and at that time. My wife reminded me, she said, no, the rainbow belongs to God. It doesn't matter who takes hold of it for what purposes. God used it first. It's his, it's his bow in the sky. Those are his colors. And it represents what he wants it to represent. Not any other special interest group. That's how we refer to those uh, with special interest, <laughs> special interest groups. So where would be a good place to start with um, with theology presuppositions? Well, um, if you've been reformed for two minutes, then I'm sure you've come across the five solas already. You know, um, the five solas were slogans that came out of the Reformation in the 16th century. And they were sola gratia or grace alone, sola fide, faith alone, solus Christus through Christ alone, sola scriptura, scripture alone, and soli deo gloria, glory of God alone. Those are just five points kind of, you know, it's a good starting point. To help build your theology. When you're talking about salvation. How are we saved? Well we're saved by grace. Through faith. Through Christ alone. Nothing else. Nothing more. Nothing less. Salvation being. Given from God. God showing his grace. That's the only thing that saves us. None of our works. Nothing outside of us, um, nothing within us is only from God through the faith that he gives us and not works 
And it's only according to, it's only through Christ, through his sacrifice and his obedience, through his work, is how we're saved. I can't really think of any other world religion, first of all, that would, um, that says that you gain salvation through the works of the deity being worshipped. Just about every other world religion I can think about says that salvation comes through some type of works that you have to do. Only in Christianity, and and I'm going to learn this eventually. I'll look into it. But only in Christianity does the God that we serve, did the God that we serve, come down from heaven, um, take on human flesh, and die as a sacrifice for the ones that he loved. Only in Christianity. You don't see that really anywhere else. And without proper presuppositions and proper theological understanding, well, you end up kind of like Church of Rome did before the Reformation and kind of still to this day, thinking that we can earn salvation um, according to grace and works. But nothing we can do saves us. The scripture says that even our best deeds are like filthy rags before God. There's nothing we can do to earn our salvation. But without a proper theological understanding of soteriology, you know, we won't we won't recognize that. Also, um, a a fairly fairly big deal when it comes to presuppositions and um, building a theology that's biblically sound, it has to be according to scripture alone. So the scriptura, meaning that the Bible is the infallible and inerrant word of God. It was God breathed and there are no mistakes and it's useful for everything we need in this life. Of course, someone tell us how to change a tire or change a diaper but everything we need pertaining to life and godliness is in there. Now, there will be those that says that scripture has been changed and tampered with, and it's not the God breathed word. God really didn't speak it. It was just men writing down their ideas and yada, yada, yada. Well, if that's how you want to believe, but you'd be wrong because God is in control of everything. And I'm sure he can superintend the, the gathering of his truth in written form, his revelation. You know, he decided to reveal himself in that manner. So from day one, he's been over it all. And it hasn't been tampered with. It hasn't been changed. There are no extra books out there floating around that aren't in there. And there aren't any books in there that shouldn't be. But without a proper theological understanding, there are those that would have you believe that we don't have everything that we should or we have too much or we have wrong things. You know. And I love the point of Soli Deo Gloria, that everything that we do, it's the glory of God alone, our entire life. 
should be lived for God's glory. We should live life as if we are in the presence of God because we are. Coram Deo, before the face of God, in the presence of God. That's how we need to live. And again, without a proper theological understanding, when theology doesn't matter, we kind of live any kind of way. We live like God cannot see us in our little dark spaces, in our little dark corners. When we don't truly believe that God is omnipotent and omnipresent, always there. You know, what what we tend to do some silly things. We tend to do some sinful things. Because sin is in us and it's looking for any and every opportunity to manifest itself mainly through the flesh. You know, the devil doesn't need to to do a whole lot. Just dealing with the flesh is enough. But by remembering these heavy theological points that God is always there and that we are living in his presence. You know, would you really want to break a law in front of a police officer with him standing right there? Would you really transgress the law? We wouldn't do that. So how much more so are we to control ourselves and fight temptation and fight sin in our life? If we're living in the presence of God, if we're living in the face of God, how should we live? We should live to bring him glory. So that is our uh, theology matters for today. <laughs> um, I hope you got something out of it. Uh, one other thing I wanted to talk about before we get out of here was uh, books and being reformed. Uh, when I first came into Reformed Theology, the, one, for, the very first thing I noticed was that somebody was always quoting a dead guy. And they were usually quoting the dead guy from something that the dead guy wrote. So I picked up real quick that one of the things that it means to be Reformed is that you read. And not a little bit, but a lot. But um, to all those cagers who are listening, stop buying books I mean, I'm sure you just got an Amazon order. It's the holiday time. There's a lot of deals going on. But read what you have already. My wife and I had this conversation uh, when I was Cajun. I was I would buy books every couple of weeks and not one or two. I'd buy like five and six at a time. And she would tell me, she said, you didn't read the last order of books you got. And I would say, yeah, um, I don't care. This is Charles Spurgeon. Um, I need to read Spurgeon because he's Spurgeon, babe, Spurge. And, and it's silly, you know, one book mastered is better than a hundred books half read. Yeah, you gain a lot of little pieces, but sheesh, it's so much money. I mean, yeah, if you have an e-reader, um, a Kindle or, if, you know, you use iBooks, um, you can get some good deals every now and again, but still, if you're not careful, you will 99 cent yourself into the poorhouse quick. And I had to catch myself sometimes because 
especially on Amazon, the 99 cent books, it, it, it's like it never even happens. You just say, ooh, 99 cents, buy, and it's done. You already have it. You know, it, you don't feel it at all. But while reading is important, it is important to learn of the historical faith, and we have to know what those who have come before us have already said. Um, a lot of the heresies that are being fought is just, are just, you know, repackages of old heresies. There aren't, there aren't anything new. There isn't anything new. But, you know, while it's important, we have to take our time. We have to slow down. We have to learn one thing at a time and take it step by step. We, no great theologian got to where they are or where they were overnight. John MacArthur didn't wake up one day last week and just be the, the genius that he is almost. You know, while I don't agree with him on everything, um, that man is really smart. But still, he's just a man. Think of any theologian you look up to. Whether it be R.C. Sproul, John Piper, um, whoever. Take your pick. They're all men. And there was a point in time where they didn't have the knowledge base that they do today. And of course, all of those guys are older. So think about yourself. Think about where you are in life. If you're in your 20s, early 30s, maybe. Maybe your late teens, early teens. I don't know where you are, but just think about where you are and think about, I don't know, 35, 40 years from now, where might you be? If you continue on the pace of buying a whole bunch of books, not really reading them, half reading them and just being an echo of what you're hearing, you'll never really grasp onto anything for yourself. But if you slow down and, you know, just take your time, work through doctrines, work through the, you know, growing a theology, a proper biblical Christ centered theology it takes time. Of course, we could just listen to sermon after sermon um, and then repeat what we're hearing. But that's not going to work for us in the long run. We have to get it for ourselves. And. Uh, one of the only ways to do that is to slow down and learn. Take up and read and read thoroughly. Be thorough in what we're reading. So we're about to go. But before we leave you, um, I thought I wanted to do recommendations, but recos have been appropriated on other podcasts. So I'm not going to do recos. But what I am going to do um here on Informers Radio, I'm going to do shout outs. So this week, I got a couple shout outs. First, I want to shout out Vody Bakum for his latest book, Expository Apologetics. I'm currently working through it right now. Um, it's um, it's fun because I haven't had that many dealings with presuppositional apologetics. I can definitely see the benefit to it. I. Uh, even before knowing what presuppositional apologetics was, I innately had an appreciation for the type of apologetic that it is because 
and reading Paul in Romans chapter nine, you know, when he would he would pose a um, a thought and then ask a question kind of rhetorically because it would, it would seem as though he um knew that that was the objection that people would raise. You know, when you would ask the question, is there any injustice with God or does not the potter have the right over the clay? You know, and then he'd answer it. And I, um, I was drawn to that early on when I, when I read it, but when I come to, came to learn, um, what presuppositional apologetics was, you know, I, I said, I have to have this book. And plus, um, Vody Bakum is one of my, my, um, favorite preachers, I guess you could say. So if I could get him on the podcast one day, that'd be dope. But yeah, definitely. If you um, if you're into expository apologetics, expository presuppositional apologetics, um, picking up expository apologetics, um, will be good for you. Um, it's using the word to answer people's objections because we have no higher authority. The scriptures are the highest and final authority we have. So. Learn the scriptures in order to answer people's objections. Expository apologetics. Vody Bakum Jr. Um, it's a dope read. Also, I got a drink. Um, shout out to Spicy Lemonade. If you've never had Spicy Lemonade, you might be missing out. I don't think it's for everybody, though. But definitely, if you can, check it out. What you do, you put, um, you squeeze some lemons into like a pitcher the lemon juice, and then you put in some water. Uh, and then you put in some uh, cayenne pepper, not a whole lot. You put in some cayenne pepper, some maple syrup, stir that bad boy up, and boom, you got spicy lemonade. I don't know, I just, I like spicy things, um, but not too spicy though. This is, this has been fun. I, I pray that you continue to keep me in your prayers, first of all. Um, and then just continue to ride out with me, man, for real. Just continue to stick with me. I promise I'm getting better. I'm going to get better. I just need you to continue to tune in. Tell a friend. You can follow me on Twitter at DA The Reformer. You can send me an email at DA The Reformer at gmail.com. Um, let's get some conversations going. Um, rate, review, subscribe, all that stuff. And yeah, man, until we meet again, um, go reform something. <laughs>